1: where in the world is Benjamin Wittes?
2: Where it literally where is like, literally, You're both you're looking at me now?
1: like
0: I'm supposed to know.
1: <laughs> I think of <laughs> anyone in this room, you might have the best idea.
0: Uh, Benjamin Wittes is in Northern Europe.
1: Ooh, Northern. Somewhere.
0: Europe. He's, Thereabouts. He's uh, is he at a
1: Viking conference?
0: Uh, not quite. Is he's he at a, a democracy a, camp? As he's, he's at an <laughs> academic conference in oh. Denmark.
1: Oh, wow. Nice. That sounds home exciting. of Hans Christiane
0: Christiana. What Anderson. do we want him
2: to bring us back?
1: um like wooden
2: shoes no that's holland that's um, holland yeah. <laughs>
1: Not some
0: mid-century modern oh, furniture yeah. oh yeah yeah that I, would be fine
1: like can you like just bring <laughs> bring some couches
0: <laughs> can you bring the proofs? entire design aesthetic back with you
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, i enjoyed denmark very much it's a lovely place i've been there, there once. I mean, yeah.
2: yeah yeah i have never been To Denmark or Holland and, frankly, don't know or care about the difference between the two (laughs) countries. (laughs) He's
1: probably not having fun.
2: No. (sighs) It's terrible there. I'm sure he's happy to be out of Dodge this particular week. It seems like a good week to just be far away from Washington, you see. So much. I
0: spent the weekend in Canada. That was very refreshing. Really? Everyone there is polite. They talk to one another even when they disagree. They disagree really politely. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, it's lovely.
1: And now you can get high.
2: <laughs> Let's flee to the north, guys. Get
1: another reason to move to Canada. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Rogue Killers Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Washington Post. No rogue killers here.
0: No, although you say that, that we so know cheerfully, of.
2: Shane.
1: <laughs> well you know it is got,
2: it is sort of a mark of absurdity in an otherwise incredibly dark story right I, like it's yeah it's almost comic relief
1: it is almost so ridiculous it is almost comic relief for uh, for for those who may have missed this the president came out earlier this week Uh, and said, who knows uh, what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, the Washington Post columnist. Uh, I got the feeling from talking to King Salman that, I don't know, maybe it was some rogue killers or something, which is very interesting because up to now the Saudi government's official line has been, we don't know what happened to him at all.
0: I I also think it's amazing to think about the kinds of rogue killers who could fly on diplomatic jackets uh, and then go into a consulate yes. to murder somebody. Those right. are some awesomely talented rogue yeah. Extremely rogue. They really
2: are.
1: <laughs> very, very rogue. Very rogue. <laughs> very
0: well-credentialed rogue killers.
1: <laughs> Driving around in, in diplomatic cars and uh, going to the consular general's house.
0: Who knows who they are? Who
1: knows, but they're definitely rogue. Uh, we're going to talk about that on the podcast this week. I'm here with Susan Hennessey and Tamara kaufman Minis. Hi, guys. Hi. Ben is in um, Iceland. <laughs> Somewhere wearing shoes made of wood.
0: <laughs> Who, knows? <laughs> Who knows? Oh man, the Danes are going to hate us now. We're not going to have any listeners <clears throat> in Denmark. When For the podcast. record, I,
1: like... I love Copenhagen. I also I love Norway. Yeah, the men in Norway are.
0: Are you my like object of... listen? <laughs> Men in Norway are you
1: ethnicized You know I have ties just... to Sweden. I did the DNA you do have the Remember when I did the DNA thing? thing? Yeah, yeah. So like but I remember when I brought my DNA and that one over an object yeah. lesson, it was like twenty percent Scandinavian. So my great great grandfather is from this town in Sweden that I know about. Uh But uh, I remember when Joe and I were there the summer, the summer in Sweden and Norway and Denmark, looking around, being like, oh, my God, my people, (laughs) they're all tall and broad (laughs) and blonde with blue eyes and pale. I was like, this is great. It's perfect. I love it. Uh, This week on the podcast, the disappearance of a Washington Post journalist becomes a foreign policy crisis for the Trump administration. U.S. and European intelligence officials say Iran may be planning attacks in Europe And the U.S. embraces a major expansion in foreign aid to counter China's growing influence on the world stage. Um, So let's talk. We talked last week and we're talking again this week about Jamal Khashoggi, uh, the Washington Post columnist. Um, The latest, maybe just to kind of jump into the story because it really has taken on this trajectory of a a really full-blown international crisis for the Trump administration. We're going to talk about a bit of why that is and kind of what uh, is illustrative about how this administration does business on the global level that's revealed in this story. But where we stand right now is that uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, is on his way back from Turkey. He flew first to Riyadh, then went to Turkey. Uh, His spokesperson said he got a firsthand briefing there in Turkey while he was there about why it is that Turkish officials have concluded that Saudi agents killed Jamal Khashoggi. I
0: hope they played him the tape.
1: Well, he they did not play the tape. So this is interesting. So <clears throat> people who have been following this story know that the Turks claim to have an audio recording from inside the consulate that they say definitively proves that Jamal was killed and then uh, he was dismembered uh, in the building. And Pompeo's spokesman said he did not listen to the audio. It's also not clear if the Turks – Offered him a chance to listen to it. Uh, The president has also said he does believe that the Turks probably have audio and maybe video uh, of the events inside, and that he wants the US government to have them. So we're sort of in this interesting moment where certainly nobody I talk to in the intelligence community is doubting that the Turks do have a tape. Uh, nobody seems to be doubting what it says, but there's been no independent verification of that. And I think it's it's actually an important point and helps us get into the moment we're at because – Since there's been no independent analysis of this by our intelligence agencies, that's one reason maybe the administration isn't coming forward with an independent assessment or a conclusion of what they think happened. So we're in this kind of holding pattern now, it seems, where Pompeo is on his way back. He uh, probably will be briefing the president, I would assume, when he returns. But the U.S. isn't really taking a position, Tammy, right? They're just sort of saying, well, there's going to be an investigation. We want transparency. Um but it does seem that the president is kind of already coming down on the side of the Saudis and this is, you know, with the rogue killers possibility and offering alternatives, even saying this week that this was another case of guilty until proven innocent. So he's invoking the experience with the in Kavanaugh. I'm animation. sure Brett Kavanaugh
2: is thrilled,
0: right? To be, to be <laughs> I'm sure.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: You know what goes around comes around. Right. I might say to Justice Kavanaugh.
1: So, like, what do we expect in the next? Let's just say the next 24 to 48 hours about what what we think is going to happen, and then if I, you know, where this kind of sets the stage for where it go next, and it goes next, and then we're going to talk more about why this has become such a crisis.
0: Right. So, whenever you have a a foreign policy crisis that is an unexpected, unexplained set of events that threaten to disrupt relations, the immediate instinct of governments is to create process to contain it. Uh, And so the first bit of process that was created was um, brokered through a Turkish-Saudi phone call and an agreement to establish a joint investigation whereby Turkish authorities had an opportunity to go into the consulate yesterday, although they then came out and claimed that surfaces had been freshly repainted and so on right before they got there. Um, the second bit of process was sending Secretary Pompeo to Riyadh and Ankara to uh, talk face-to-face with those involved. But this is a great example of how the carelessness of the Trump administration and President Trump himself the carelessness about facts and about process gets in their own way. Um, In principle, having Pompeo show up in Riyadh with a serious face on uh, and a a serious readout that said, you know, I conveyed our shock and dismay and our concern and, you know, uh, made clear that we expect X, Y, and Z. Uh, If Pompeo had done that, it would have relieved a lot of pressure on the administration but he couldn't pull that off. Uh, he showed up in Riyadh all smiles, had a 15-minute courtesy visit with the king, and then was photographed uh, literally guffawing with his friend, Mohammed bin Salman, who is accused in, uh, in the reporting that we have based on these leaks from Turkey of having been directly involved in this decision. So, you know, I don't think the Pompeo trip helped the Trump administration at all, Relieve the growing focus in Washington on their own relationship to the Saudis, on Trump and his son in law, Jared Kushner's personal relationships with the Saudi royal family. And all of this um, now increasingly threatening to blow up to the extent that we can say Trump has a strategy in the Middle East, his strategy in the Middle East, which is very Saudi centric. So, for example, you saw Senator Lindsey Graham, a close Trump ally on television yesterday, making clear that from his perspective, this idea of rogue killers uh, was not going to hold up. In fact, it was insulting. Uh, and that he personally felt betrayed uh, because he had carried water for the Saudis on Capitol Hill. And now they're they're clearly trying to avoid responsibility for what's happened. Um, so he, he his messaging about being personally offended, I think is a message to the Saudis, Who will understand that as an honor issue and a very serious one, as well as a message to the administration? I'm not covering for you up here. You guys are on your own. And I think it demonstrates the extent to which Jamal's disappearance and likely murder has become a catalyst for a lot of doubts that had already been growing in. Uh, Capitol Hill in the Washington policy establishment more broadly and also inside the administration in some corners uh, about the Saudis, about Mohammed bin Salman um, and his competence and his policy preferences and how well those aligned with American interests. So that's one reason why I think we've seen this issue explode into full-blown crisis. But the other reason, I think, is Trump's carelessness with the facts because his willingness to get off the phone with King Salman and say, oh, yeah, well, maybe he's rogue killers and his willingness to get out ahead of the facts by saying things like, well, we know the Turks have a video and some audio and I want to get it right away. He's not leaving much space for his senior officials to manage this crisis and tamp it down. He keeps blurting things out that gives them less room to maneuver.
2: Yeah, but – I think even whenever we sort of take a look at not just the optics issue of Pompeo's trip, especially to Riyadh, but but also uh, some of the more substantive elements. So uh, Pompeo himself said that they did not discuss the, quote, elemental issue of whether or not he's alive or dead, right? So this is not it's not just that it's a its a courtesy visit. It's that they actually aren't interested in the absolute right. basic amount of fact-finding here. And so I think that what this, uh, what this looks like is not an administrative administration in search of the facts but administration in search of a narrative and so what they and that differs from Every other issue, they they try to handle. I, I think there is one way in which this differs from every other issue, and that's that there appears to be the potential of really really hard proof out there. That sort of you know this specter over the whole thing of how much can they get away with denying if there actually is something like uh, like an actual recording. And that's why I think these the leaks about the recording is sort of the question about whether the recordings themselves are going to become uh, going to be public uh, is is just incredibly interesting.
1: And this makes me think, too, about what Tammy was saying about you start to create a process when a crisis happens. So, like, on the intel side, Susan, like, you would imagine, okay, what capabilities can we bring to bear to try and verify that Jamal Khashoggi's dead? What happened to him? And it seems like if the Turks are saying we've got an audio, like, under normal circumstances, intelligence officials would say, great, let us hear it. Give it to us. And the fact that the administration almost seems to be avoiding wanting to hear about it, saying, oh, sure, we'd like to hear it," but Pompeo saying, oh, he didn't listen to it. We didn't discuss the elemental parts of things. It, it, that, that speaks to me like there's a part of the process there, that intel process that they're seeking to, if not outright avoid, they really don't seem to be trying to uh, give it any real heft.
0: So I, I guess the one thing I would point out is that if the Turks were comfortable With the idea that the full story would come out in all its ugliness, they would have shared that intelligence Mm. already. It would already be in the public domain.
1: So you, you think so, you think they would have actually just made it public?
0: Well, I don't know, but, but certainly U.S. officials who wanted it would have it, and if the president expressed a wish, it would have been sent to him.
1: So you think maybe it's more the Turks just not wanting to give it up? Well,
0: I think this is the intersection between Trump's interest in downplaying what the Saudis may have done and the Turks' interest in using this crisis for their own rapprochement with Riyadh, which is a very important relationship with them, and they've got a lot of – ideological differences right now, but they do a lot of business together and neither side really wants a total rupture. If the Turks had put all this out in public, that's it. The Saudis would have cut them off Turkish businessman selling in Saudi Arabia would be kicked out of the country. Market relationships would have been disrupted. It would cost the Turks a lot of money at a time when they really can't afford it. So I I don't think we can blame the Trump administration entirely for the fact that this stuff isn't really known and these questions aren't being asked and this evidence isn't being weighed. The Turks also are really conflicted here.
2: I mean, this is a question, and maybe this is one for you, Shane. Of, it seems relatively clear that at, at least the U.S. media believe these tapes genuinely do exist, and they do in some broad sense capture, you know, the, the murderer uh, and, and are actually recording the people they purport to. Then there's this extra layer of spin on top of it that seems like it might be incredibly consequential. So last week, we talked about this as potentially being a rendition gone wrong. That was sort of the, the explanation that Best fit the facts, right? Why, why would you do something so brazen? Why, why would you do it in the
0: conflict? Yeah. It's
2: so uh, you know, it, it's so overblown. But when, what Turkish officials appear to be suggesting and what they're saying is on this tape, is that no, this was an intentional murder right. from the outset. And so that really does have pretty substantial consequences in terms of how we should understand what the Saudis did, how we should understand an appropriate response here. And so I'm curious of what is your sense of of how trustworthy this information is
1: it's it's a great question I think it's the one we've been struggling with the entire time in reporting this because it, it, it's no secret in the reporting so much of this is coming out of Turkish government officials and they're the ones who have been sort of really leaking out and even in some cases more publicly stating uh, you know what their version of the events is um, I will say that in, and we've reported this in the paper, Talking to American officials, we're not hearing anybody saying that they doubt that there's an audio or that they doubt that it shows or demonstrates that Jamal Khashoggi was killed. Now, when you get into the elements of, well, was he killed right away? Was he tortured? Was there a screw-up and they were supposed to kidnap him? This is where, it, for me as a reporter, it starts to get really dicey and uncomfortable, and we have not independently confirmed uh, reports that have been in the journal and the New York Times this week uh, about the precise kind of TikTok of the details, which are, are really ghastly. That said, I mean, I think the best that we can do at any moment is try and say, okay, well, what is the government pushing forward as the narrative? Let's be clear that it's coming from that side, and then what do the Americans say in response to that? And and notably, we just haven't heard any pushback from the American side saying. We don't believe this. We think it's not credible. I mean nobody's – and maybe that's just because like it's so clear that Jamal went into that building and didn't come out. Um, but it's been – it has been striking that um, the Turks have really been in control of the details of that narrative. And I think you know, to Tammy's point, they have an incentive to not reveal too much. And so I think we're kind of doing the best that we can. But it's, it makes everyone I think a bit – anxious that we know this is coming from one side and we're just not hearing from the American side an independent um, assessment of, of what the Turks have.
2: Right. I think it is interesting that we aren't seeing this sort of counter leaks. Ordinarily, whenever somebody puts something like that on the table, there's sort of a rush to leak your own, uh, you know, sort of counter messaging, counter evidence, counter narrative. You know, I I think it's almost um, it is part of sort of Trump validating this notion of implausible deniability. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. All that matters is if the president of the United States is willing to to be on TV uh, or stand up in front of the American people and say, "Oh, yeah, you know, it was probably rogue killers." Because everybody understands that once he has adopted that, whether it's Russian hacking or Brett Kavanaugh's, uh, you know, potential criminal history or uh, the murder uh, murder of a U.S. resident abroad, that this we're no longer in a realm in which the actual evidence is going to be informing the administration's response. And so in some sense, you know, the question here is not whether or not uh, Donald Trump's mind is changed, because there was never really a question about whether he actually believed this in the first instance. It's only whether or not sufficiently concrete evidence can come out that it's going to hem in those other individuals that might be inclined to sort of go along with it, whether or not it's Mike Pompeo or, or individuals in Congress.
0: I think there's another dimension of Trump's behavior here that's worth taking a minute on, which is the extent to which he has been entirely crass in laying out his own calculus here, which is, uh, well, they're buying weapons from us, and that's good for me. It makes me look good, and it's good for some jobs in the defense industry, and therefore, why should I make a big deal out of this? The guy wasn't a citizen um, and he wasn't killed here. And the crassness of that calculation is so out of step with the story that, you know, many decades of Democratic and Republican presidents have told about American foreign policy. No matter how hypocritical you may believe those presidents have been, I can't think of another president who said, well, They buy weapons from us, so what's the big deal, right? And I think that that has also been shocking in a way that the denial of facts that you just laid out, Susan, is not any longer shocking. And I think that we've seen both Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill and some foreign governments respond to that by saying, wow, it's not acceptable to go that far in rejecting basic tenants. You know, you're not even doing this on national security grounds or pretending this is about cooperation on counterterrorism or or anything else related to national security. You're saying it's just about arms contracts. That's that's pathetic. That's not acceptable. We're, we're That's not the country that we are. And so I think this is one of those moments where you sort of see through the fog a bit, actually, and get a look at who this guy really is, how he's really doing business on behalf of the United States. And there are a lot of Republicans who have looked at that and said, wow, that's, I don't like that. And I don't want that done in my name. So I wonder if this might be a moment for a little bit of a pushback
2: I mean, so I, I do wonder and sort of a question for you, Tammy, if this was an ordinary administration um, that actually was convinced that the Saudis were responsible for this. What kind of response would we be expecting? Like, what is the appropriate atonement? Is this that if a prior administration actually believed this and wasn't willing to sort of tolerate the hypocrisy, there would be a rupture of relations? Like, In an ordinary world on Earth, too, how does something like this play out?
0: On Earth, too, I think the U.S. administration days ago would have called for some kind of international commission to investigate this, to take it out of the hands of both interested parties, the Turks and the Saudis. I think the United States would also have coordinated closely with other governments that have a keen interest, such as Western European governments, about whether they might want to Impose some constraints on Saudi diplomatic facilities in their countries. All of us together, uh, in a similar way that we coordinated with the Europeans in expelling Russian diplomats after it was shown uh, that they'd been engaged in covert activity in the UK uh, and an attempted assassination. You know, part of what's shocking about this. It's something that's actually really troubling in normal diplomatic practice that a consular facility would be used in this way. And if it were any other country, some little country that nobody had significant relations with, the response would just be to close its missions and kick them all out. Part of what's striking to me is that we're not seeing any of that multilateral engagement with what's really, really troubling about this incident in terms of international diplomacy.
1: Well, the French and the British and the Germans issued a <clears throat> trilateral statement condemning this. but
0: Took them a week and a half.
1: Well, and we weren't on that statement. So yeah. it's interesting. Well, as if, you know, trouble with one major player in the region weren't enough. Now we're having problems with Iran. Well, we've been having problems with Iran for a long time, but there's some new reporting. To add to your anxieties.
0: You know, back in the 1980s, we had two rogue actors in the Middle East, and we had this whole dual containment thing. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Mm-hmm. So, oh, sorry, in the 90s, we had the <laughs> back in the 90s. You're we, saying everything <laughs> old is new again? <laughs> yes, I'm saying everything old is new again.
1: So, uh, some colleagues of mine, uh, Suad McKenna and Joby Warwick, uh, have a report in the Post about U.S. intelligence officials. And they're concerned, well, in U.S. and European intelligence socials, they're concerned that Iran may be planning terrorist attacks in Europe.
2: Although, hold on. This story authored by one Shane Harris is bonkers,
1: right? <laughs> so It's I, my specialty. I
2: think we need to take a step back and actually set a little bit of the narrative yeah, scene yeah. here because it's so weird. Yeah,
1: yeah. So the, the the kind of key event that we lead off with in this story is – uh, uh it's, it's actually just quite recent uh, – A Iranian diplomat stationed at the embassy in Vienna, Austria – Pulls over on the Autobahn in his car to fill up at a gas station and suddenly is surrounded by German police. He is then taken into custody on suspicion that he is actually um, a spy runner in Europe who has been working with a, a couple of Iranian descent living in Belgium and that he passed over to them an explosive device that they were going to use to blow up a rally of the MEK, which is an Iranian dissident group in Paris that was also attended by Rudy Giuliani. Now, in skeptical times, we might look at this plot and say, has this been something that's sort of concocted and uh, what's the evidence behind this? But multiple governments (laughs) have now weighed in on this. The man has actually been extradited uh, to Belgium where he's going to be put through process. Officials really believe that this was genuinely some kind of plot by Iran to possibly blow up a rally attended by thousands of people at a major capital in Europe. And to Susan's point, made us all kind of stop and say, wait, what is that? What's going on? Wait, uh, wait. This follows well, – it also follows on the heels of the arrest of two Iranian men in California recently who were charged with conducting surveillance of Jewish organizations and – and the MEK as well. And in our reporting, when we were talking to intelligence officials on both continents, they are picking up signs, both in these cases and in other through other uh, measures, that the Iranians seem to be developing what are called targeting package, which is just targeting packages, which is to say, people and places that they might want to attack, uh, given uh, depending on how uh, negotiations go, depending on how world events go. But sort of building in these contingency plans which made us all stop and say, why in the world would Iran and this administration contemplate launching terrorist attacks in Europe? It was kind of a a shocking realization, not to say that they're on the cusp of about to do it, but this seemed to be, in in talking to folks about it, something that the Iranians have long been doing in terms of engaging in contingency plans. There was once a plan to assassinate the Saudi ambassador to the United States at Cafe Milano here in Washington, D.C., um, but this stuff is gaining more traction now. And I think, you know, Susan, I'd love to know what you found about it, particularly bonkers. But the idea that you know, you're going to blow up a rally where Rudy Giuliani is attending did seem to us especially. Yeah, I
2: mean, I think the crazy part is, is why would Iran take that kind of right. risk? Um, the part that I, I think is astonishing about the story, though, is that it does appear to be a pretty developed plot, right? So it actually says that, uh, you know, he gave this couple a pound of explosive material and a detonator, right? So this is not, uh, you know, sort of freelancers just talking about things. This actually appears to be a, a foiled plot and sort of in the genuine sense of, of the term. and uh, you know. And, and by diplomatic officials, right? So this is not, um, you know, we're not seeing five and six layers of cutouts here. We're seeing actual diplomatic officials passing over explosive materials. So that to me just, it, it, it's such a bizarre and risky behavior. And, you know, I know that uh, we don't want to attribute absolutely everything that happens anywhere to Donald Trump, um, but it does feel like part and parcel of this this notion of, of countries thinking that they can just get away with anything. It, it's just so brazen.
0: Okay, so I'm going to be the contrary one here and
2: tell us it's okay. No, I, it's fine, guys. It's not
0: it's not that I think it's fine, but I don't think it's bonkers, okay? Iran, even though John Bolton says it, it's still true. The Iranians are the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. They have conducted outrageous, brazen attacks against a Jewish community center in Buenos Aires, just to name one. They have killed, you know, hundreds of people. They've they've assassinated people on foreign soil. They do this all the time. This is their normal uh, MO. And, you know, reading in, in the details of your piece, Shane, it's clear that there is evidence of this activity in Germany going back to 2013. Right. So this isn't even, you know, post Iran deal. This is during Iran deal. And what that says to me is that this is business as usual for the Ministry of Interior and the IRGC. They're always looking for targeting packages. They're always trying to build this kind of capacity. Maybe the only thing that's surprising is that they were doing this in Europe. The governments there have been spending a lot of time building up their counterintelligence uh, and counterterrorism capabilities because of the horrific homeland threat they've been facing from ISIS over the last 5 years. So maybe the only surprising thing is that they did it in Europe where they were more likely to get caught. But the idea that they were doing this is not bonkers and it doesn't surprise me at all. This is what they do.
1: One thing that was so interesting to us too is that this is happening in Europe at a time when the Iranians, <clears throat> at least you would you would imagine certainly want to try and hold the Iranian nuclear deal together now that the United States has exited it and the European partners to that deal are doing their best as well, which made this incredibly awkward for uh, German authorities and French authorities when there's this plot revealed to possibly set off a bomb in Paris and then French authorities have to say, oh, no, no, but it's okay. They're, you know, the, they're still our friends and we're going forward with the deal. The Iranian reaction of this was fascinating too. They actually put out the idea that this was – concocted that this was the MEK running a false flag operation trying to embarrass the Iranian government because the Iranian president happened to be uh, uh, in France at the time that this was was flaring up and the meK
0: <laughs> happened to get a, a an accredited Iranian diplomat to be right. their dupe I mean right, right. that's almost <clears throat> as incredible as the Saudi rogue killer theory <laughs>
1: right I mean it was just kind of silly and it you know it did make me think uh, you know I wonder if it made me start to recalculate my thoughts about what does Iran want out of the next phase of the nuclear deal, and you know, are they really intent on trying to hold it together with the Europeans? Because if they were, you think, well, what, you know, why are we plotting terrorist attacks? Or was this just a case of a guy who got really sloppy? Maybe there wasn't an intention to get caught, and maybe even the plot wasn't as full formed as European officials uh, think. But I, it it just it struck me that this was, you know, we 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 attribute a lot to the Iranians in terms of motivation on the U.S. side. I mean, there's always, you know, the the state sponsor of terror aspect. There's the the Trump administration kind of cast them as almost a unidimensional actor. But within the government itself, there's the IRGC. There's the intelligence ministry. There's some thought in this story of whether or not one group is sort of getting ahead of the other. Maybe one group is getting sloppy. It's, It's not a monolith. And when these things happen, it kind of peels back the layer on a system that is actually quite complex. And one that I think we we often just don't know that much about.
2: I mean, it, it does seem as though the sort of the rogue killers theory might actually make sense here, right? That that uh, you know Iranian intelligence sort of factions don't communicate with each other, don't necessarily communicate well with you know sort of uh, the the ruling government, and so you know the the possibility of people freelancing or sort of getting ahead of things in ways that might have you know really catastrophic foreign policy consequences uh, seems. More plausible here than it does in uh, than it does in the Saudi case. It also seems like an incredibly volatile and dangerous mix um, because uh, this certainly is a moment in which that type of miscalculation could have cascading consequences.
0: Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that in the story, Shane, you quote Matt Levitt, a colleague at the Washington Institute, who notes that you know, there's a certain amount of entrepreneurial spirit in the uh, Iranian intelligence services. And so this might have been an operation that didn't necessarily have senior level sign off, I thought. So that would go to your rogue killers possibilities, Susan. But I but I think that the point you made, Shane, about this just isn't a unitary government is really the trenchant point here. We We can't know precisely, at least given the information that we have available, you know, why the MOIS might have wanted to carry out terrorist attacks in Europe as opposed to somewhere else, or why they would have wanted to hit this MEK rally when MEK does a major rally in Paris every year, right? So why this year? But I think what we do know is that there is a part of the Iranian government that is the public face that engages in foreign relations and diplomacy that negotiated a nuclear deal. And that part of the Iranian government has absolutely no authority over the IRGC or the Ministry of Interior. We have abundant evidence of that. And so, you know, the question is whether the very apex of the Iranian regime's triangle, the supreme leader himself would have any interest in trying to reconcile these competing vectors, or whether he just sits up there and waits for things to come into open conflict, and then he resolves them.
1: I was also struck too, and this is maybe as a closing thought on this, why the United States has not taken more advantage? Why the Trump administration hasn't taken more advantage of this uh, story. of this particular plot? I mean, it was, you know, uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, about a month and a half ago, I think it was, uh, on a trip said he, you know, within a session with reporters said Iran is plotting terrorist attacks in the heart of Europe. Um, and he didn't give any specifics and actually caught a lot of heat for that. Well, it seems now pretty you know. clear there's intelligence coming forward, not just this, but I mean, other other concerns, I think, as well, that this might reveal a more uh, extensive set of ambitions on the part of the Iranians. And yet you're not hearing anything from the White House about, see, this just proves our point. They're an exporter of terror. This is another reason to to pull out of the of the nuclear deal. And I wonder if there's a calculation on the part of the administration that says, let's not push this particular line. Let's let the sanctions take hold uh, for the sanctions take hold again and pressure Iran that way. Because this next round, when they go into effect, the United States is saying we will not do business with anyone who is doing business with the Iranians. And that seems to me an even more sort of – explosive way for the United States to put leverage on other countries, which is to say, basically, like, you get to choose. Do you want to do business with us or with Iran? Which one is more valuable? And in well, sense, and to <laughs>
0: Germany in particular, or France, do you want to do business with us or with the guys who try to blow up your capital?
1: And maybe that's just <laughs> it, right? This thing becomes something in reserve. So when you need it, you can say, oh, and by the way, they've been doing this as well. So, <clears throat> so I, was, I was expecting a story like this might be the kind of thing that would set the president off and lead to kind of a tweet storm, but it actually has been this sort of reserved feeling, almost as if there is a strategy behind what we're doing with Iran. And it's it's notable that in this administration, if when you find squint, when you, you, you find strategy, it. that's kind of the more extraordinary thing. Well, it, it
0: could be a strategy, or it could just be that this is this is just more winning. There's so much winning, Shane. The president <laughs> so actually training. can't keep track of it all.
1: He, he he just felt like he didn't need to mention. it. Aren't
0: you tired of it?
1: I mean, I know I'm tired.
0: Yeah, I'm tired of all the winning. I am, I am exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so over this winning, man. Please. Uh,
1: uh, speaking of winning, um, foreign development and aid, big win
2: yeah. in the United States. I thought you were going to say China winning.
1: <laughs> China may be winning too. Uh, uh, reading from the New York Times here, there was with little fanfare, uh, President Trump has created a new foreign aid agency, the United States International Development Finance Corporation. That's not as catchy as USAID. No. Wait, that's it's not US, even as catchy.
2: That's
1: USIDFC. Yeah. US US, let's not do that. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and gave it the authority to provide sixty billion dollars in loans, loan guarantees, and insurance to companies. Willing to do business in, in do business in developing nations, this is a counterweight to China, which has been on its own development spree uh, and making loans and uh, develop, doing development projects, uh, particularly in Africa and other parts of Asia. Tammy, we had talked before uh, on the podcast about USAID budgets getting slashed, and then Pompeo actually getting some of that money back. Um, should we be viewing this as a win for international development by the United States, or is this? Should we be viewing this much more narrowly as another front that we're opening up in our uh, uh, strategic adversarial uh, relationship with China?
0: You know, I was struck by this because it seemed to me one of those cases where uh, a good idea had been around and was being pushed by sort of wonky policy experts, including, I guess, some some colleagues here at Brookings, um, but hadn't gotten political traction. And then all of a sudden it found its hook, its news hook, right? It found – and the administration and and Republican allies of the administration and Congress suddenly found that there was uh, – that they could pick up and use this issue and frame it in their own special way and get credit for it and link it to to their desired strategy. And so it took off and it got passed and it got signed, and you know, sometimes that's the way policy ideas actually become reality. It's not that you persuade everyone of the merits of the proposal. It's that it becomes politically advantageous to a wide enough group of people that a coalition builds to pass it through Congress and get it signed by the president. And gosh darn it, that's the way American politics <laughs> is supposed to work. It's just that it happens that way so rarely now that – We, we, you know, that we've kind of forgotten that this is the way it's supposed to work. And, you know, so in a way, the, the headline that the New York Times put on this Trump embraces foreign aid to counter China's global influence, the irony of it is perfect. I mean, look, the administration hates foreign aid, but they had come in saying, well, we want to do more loans and less direct grants. And boy, this thing is all loans. Uh, And they said they want to help their friends and, uh, and help pursue national security goals with foreign aid. And hey, this can be packaged as countering China. We'll see how it actually gets used. Because that's the other feature that's pretty common to these kinds of foreign policy proposals is that... You might frame something for a particular political moment, but once it gets established and created and institutionalized out there in the executive branch, it will take
2: on a mission of its own. I mean, I think there's almost a, like, charming innocence here to this, oh, you know, it's Trump has now discovered, uh, you know, this new, uh, this new rationale, new policy rationale. And um, a a quote in this New York Times article really, uh, you know, stuck with me. Um, And this is uh, a quote by Representative Ted Yoho. Is that how you say his name? Uh, Hopefully that's correct. Um, Quote, my whole impetus in running for Congress in the first place was to get rid of foreign aid. It was my thing. But if we can reformulate it and modernize it, yeah, I have no problem with that. There are people who want to do this for humanitarian aid. Fine. There are people like me who want to do this for national security. Like me. Fine. So (laughs) stumbling on this revelation that humanitarian aid and national security interests can sometimes go hand in hand. And for him <laughs> to present this as if he personally has just figured this out. And now, literally, he says, I've changed and I think he's changed. It's all about China. It's like uh, you almost want to like slam your head on the desk of just you people have got to be kidding me yeah right.
0: but you know what when they when they go through that conversion and you've sold them on something that was a good idea all along but now they take ownership of it that's the moment we policy wonks live for. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I mean, I do think we have to think about it a little bit, sort of in terms of this being a strategy to counter China, a little bit in the context of this somewhat aggressive speech that Vice President Mike Pence made, where he really sort of came out swinging against China. Um, you know, that's the, to the extent that there actually does appear to be, uh, I guess, an acceleration of strategy rather than uh, than a change in strategy. It, it does appear as though that is the, the, the this that this is really sort of an inflection point on the administration's posture towards China.
1: I think that's exactly right and you're seeing it play out in the intelligence community as well where who is sort of the you know the the key person pushing all of this uh, or is it a confluence of some key actors? I would argue one of them is certainly Gina Aspel, the new CIA director, who in this pretty brief and uh, you know unornamented, shall we say, very straightforward speech that she gave a couple of weeks ago in Louisville, uh, made it very clear that the CIA is returning to – collecting intelligence on big strategic actors, and number one of those is China. And she actually talked about China's practice of uh, doing development and aid and loans uh, in developing countries, and that being something that the United States was keenly aware of as a strategic factor that they had to respond to. I mean, you can feel the sort of institutional weight, like the aircraft carrier, turning Back towards big nation states and towards China. And I think for a lot of people, too, who felt that for the past two years, the U.S. has been consumed by talk of Russia – This is a very welcome pivot. I mean, people who I talk to, Russia experts saying like, you know, Russia experts themselves, and as well as China experts saying, finally, like Russia is not 10 feet tall. Like, yes, it meddled in the elections in a huge way. It's done some really outrageous things. It is a nuclear power. But China, as we've said in previous weeks on the podcast, is such a more multifaceted, multidimensional, strategic adversary and potential threat. And this is another component of that, right? You can see it's almost Almost as if if you just take the rhetoric of the president out a little bit, there's, there is in fact a foreign policy that is forming and realigning among some pretty clear axes.
2: I mean, it is sort of like Tammy's point on, you know, you need to find a news hook that, you know, you already want to make this pivot to focusing more on China. And hey, pitching it to the president as, wouldn't it be great for us all to be talking about China as this big, you know, great power enemy instead of Russia? You know, that that's the thing that, that he actually cares about. And so that's the way to sort of slip in your you know, your your policy goals, like, you know, when you mix your vegetables in with your yeah. kids' mac and cheese. And you, give, and you give him a trade war,
1: which he wanted, right? right. I mean, and, he, and, and he's one of the few people in the administration who actually wanted it. And so you can almost sort of see, you know, Mike Pence, you know, actually for, for shrewdly taking perhaps uh, advantage of this moment when the president is itching for a fight with China. Uh, and certainly others of his advisors would love to get him to stop talking about Russia.
0: Yeah, I think there's also a dimension here where, you know, there's been a long running actually debate among China experts, among foreign policy strategy people more broadly about how to view China. Is it fundamentally a competitor or is it fundamentally an adversary? And, you know, Pence was crystal clear in his speech that, okay, we tested the theory that China is just a rising power that we could integrate into the global system It ain't integrating. It's violating the norms. It's not playing by the rules that we like. It's an adversary. And so, you know, I have no doubt that there will be those analytical pieces coming out that will be critiquing the administration's stance and saying, you're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy by treating them as an adversary. We can cooperate with them on X, Y, and Z. But the administration has now chosen a side in that debate. And I think, you know, Uh, Again, on uh, Earth-2, in a normal administration, a decision to see a rising power like China as an adversary would mean, okay, there may be isolated instances of cooperation on specific issues, as there was with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Uh, But fundamentally, we are out to beat them, and we're out to ensure that they don't expand their own influence in ways that impinge on ours. And so that, you know, that kind of sets us up for a much longer-term challenge, uh, and it's one that I think is uh, articulated now in the National Security Strategy. It's articulated in the National Defense Strategy that got released this year, Um we will probably see it in budget priorities, certainly in the Defense Department, but hopefully also you know, in the State Department in terms of global counter-propaganda efforts, and maybe in more uh, initiatives like this. Okay, this is a loan initiative, but how might we reshape foreign, foreign aid as well?
1: All right. Let's reshape objects in object lessons. That's good. Okay, sure. <laughs> it felt weak, but go ahead. What's your object? <laughs>
2: um, I have an object this week, um, and it is an article by Josh Rogan uh, called Giselle Donnelly Can Finally Be Herself. Um, it is about uh, a scholar at AEI who has now come out as a trans woman, Gis- Giselle Donnelly. Um, I, d- I doubt that on any sort of substantive, po- there's much policy, substantive policy agreement, um, but I think, you know, Women in the national security scholarship space are still uh, few and far between, or at least uh, it's a male-dominated profession. Um, and so uh, I-, I think it's always a uh, great and wonderful thing whenever we can welcome Someone into that uh, sort of sisterhood and is a good example that uh, the national security community is a community that can tolerate a lot of diversity and sort of and still do uh, important, meaningful work. And uh, just to commend AEI on their very supportive statement, sort of embracing their colleague. I just thought it was a really nice story. Indeed.
0: Right
1: on. Tammy.
2: Um, Okay. Well, I'm not going to shape
0: this object because I think it's kind of perfect. My object is political cartoon by your colleague at the Washington Post, Shane, Tom Tolls, uh, my neighbor, your colleague, <laughs> and a really, really talented artist uh, who uh, drew a very moving image about Jamal Khashoggi. Um, it's, it's just a, a blank piece of paper uh, with a fountain pen labeled with Jamal's name, and it says, this story is not finished. And I think you know, going to the theme of our first segment, it's not finished. This there is a lot to go yet in this story, and you know, whatever you may think of um, of what ultimately comes out, uh, and however horrific Jamal's fate uh, may prove to be, he's never going to be forgotten.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we'll be here to talk about it in weeks to come, I'm sure. Uh, but for now, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare page. <clears throat> it's out there, right? It's good? I think it's so. it's awesome. It's, it's up. somewhere. It's there. It's cool. somewhere to be found. Okay. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. I love reading the reviews. Yeah, have been, oh, really, been really Can I, really I just say, That's I was out first.
0: lecturing at Marine Corps University last week, and I met a rational security fan out at Marine Corps University. Nice. That was awesome. That is great. always it I always meeting listeners. When you, meet, when you listeners. meet them in the wild, it's yeah. awesome. It's great.
1: It's our people. Our people are there. <laughs> our audio engineer is this week is Matthew Kahn. Back in the audio chair, Matt. Thanks a lot. Uh, This show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Musical group by Brett Kavanaugh's new blues band. Have you guys heard about this? Oh god! It's called the Rogue Swillers.
0: Oh, Oh. they like beer.
1: (laughs) They like beer.
0: They like beer a lot. Sometimes a little too much. It It was just some four hundred pound guy on a bed.
2: Some other dude did wow. it.
1: Wow. Yeah. Connecting stories.
2: <laughs> it all comes together well, right here actually, at the end of the fun story. Well
1: done. It's one, one
2: story. Horrible all, nightmare all, of a story.
1: All set to beautiful music by Sophia Yan. On behalf of my friend Susan Hennessy and Tomorrow Goffman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week when Ben will be here with his new wooden shoes. Bye. <laughs>